you'd like to open up your Bibles with me, it will be in 1 Timothy uh, 2 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Actually looking at just one verse, verse 8. I'll get to you in a moment, but I just want to kind of give an update. Where, we, where my wife and I were this past week, we were in Ontario uh, at, a, at a Great Commission Collective Conference. That's the church planning network that we belong to, that we were planted out of the Great Commission Collective, uh, a conference called Press On. I just want to share a few things that are really encouraging to me that we took in there. The first night, on the Tuesday night, there was a message from a guy, Norm Miller, uh, Redemption London, Ontario, a church that actually helped us financially to get going. And he preached a message that I remember a number of things, but as a pastor, he said, as a pastor, get in the study, stay in the study, and get at it. And I was like so encouraged and fired up. I was ready to fly home. And like, I was good. I was good. Get with the conference. I heard another message the following morning by Robbie Simons, pastor of Hope Oakville. And he talked about the discipline of watchfulness. Something maybe we don't think about. The discipline of watchfulness. Basically, to be often with God in prayer and his word. He, he kind of started with uh, Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. And just, and just as I was encouraged, hopefully I can encourage you, by our intimacy with God, through prayer and the word, we guard our hearts. Because if you let other things into your heart, it pollutes that wellspring of life. So I was really greatly encouraged with that. And I just want to share one more thing before we get into the word this morning. There was a, uh, a pastor, a planter, Eric, and he was in Quebec. And uh, so... Hearing his story, they, he started about five years ago. They wanted to plant a church in Quebec. Pretty dark place. I guess statistically there's only um, 2% of the 9 million population would have any religious affiliation. And that's, so that's Buddhism. That could be Muslim. That could be Catholic or Protestant. Only 2% out of 9 million. So they seek to, to plant a church uh, five years ago. And actually he wasn't even the planter. It was somebody else. And they had this kind of small group, but the guy who was in front of him, the guy who was the leader, had a moral failure. And it kind of all fell apart. And he felt called by God to like, no, we need this type of church. We're going to keep going. And so even as he was trying to gather people in these past number of years, he, he, what we do, you have these what's called vision meetings. And you're like, hey, I want to tell people about the type of church we want to become as you're just starting to gather people. So he advertised, he let people know, and he had this vision meeting, and he as he went there, no one came. Not a soul came. So he was, he was just cry, like literally crying and crying out to the Lord. Why, why do you have us here? Are we supposed to keep going? What's, what's happening? And as he's like, as he's crying on the floor out to the Lord, one person comes in. Hey, is there a vision meeting in this place? So he gets up and he wipes his tears and he starts sharing with this guy about the type of church that they want to become. And just, friends, the reason I'm sharing this with you, because just a few weeks ago, they kind of officially started L'Eglise Dox, Doxa. And you kind of, I think Doxa is glory in French. But they started, I don't know how big they are, but in the hard ground of Quebec, they started a new church, another gospel witness. And so we just got to hear a number of different stories like that uh, going to Ontario, the Great Commission Collective Conference. So encouraging, uh, such a blessing for us. So uh, spiritually, just really uh, encouraged, physically, very tired. Um, but may God give me grace to speak this morning. I'm just going to pray before we uh, even open up God's word. 
If you want to pray with me. Oh, Lord, thank you for your kindness, your, your, your mercies in going to Ontario, coming back. I, I thank you for the chance we had to sing songs to your name. Oh, Lord, and, and now as we, as we open your word, I pray uh, by your spirit you would speak through me. I pray you'd give me uh, strength, not my own. I pray you would give me clarity in what I say. I pray you would speak through me. Oh, Lord, even as we, as we talk and, and think about prayer, I pray you would make each one of us individually a praying person. I pray you would, you would form us to be a praying church. You would increase our faith and trust in you, oh, Lord. God, we, we can't do this. I can't do this. But I pray as we open up your word now that you would uh, multiply it. I pray you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and Holy Spirit, have your way amongst us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be just looking at, again, chapter 2, uh, verse 8. But just for the context, we're going to start in verse 1. If you want to stand with me we'll, as we read God's word this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 8. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So as we were, as we were flying to Ontario, uh, me and the, the pastor from Redemption Edmonton, we're both tall guys, and we got uh, the emergency row just for some extra leg room. And... Uh, of course, as you get the emergency row, we just wanted it for leg room, but then there's the pressure of uh, if anything goes wrong, it's on us. <laughs> and so the this, this stewardess kind of came and, and she was asking, do you understand how this works? Reach your hand up and you pull it. And, and we were, I don't know, almost, not being smart, Alex, but probably, but we wanted to know more information. So, okay, we're like, okay, when we do pull it, like, do we just stay there? Do we you know, go outside the plane? You're like, okay, when you go outside the plane, like, do you just stay, like, right there? Do you keep walking? Like, where do you go to? And truthfully, I've never actually heard the answers to these questions. You think, I just want leg room. Emergency happens. I'm, I, I didn't know any of the protocol anyways. So we are learning a little bit more of what we were supposed to do. And even as I, as I share this message, it's one verse it's very clear, but I'm going to kind of step aside and kind of just be that sarcastic person questioning. 
And it's not that I have a split personality. I'm just <laughs> doing it uh, just, to, just to show, like, it's very clear. But I'm just going to kind of press in the clarity so hopefully we can see it uh, in an even clearer sense of, of as it's laid out for us. So the first thing I want us to see in one verse Paul writes, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. First thing I want us to see is Paul's desire is actually God's desire. So in its context here, verse 8, remember uh, if you were with us last week, what came before? Paul was calling the church. First of all, the first thing he's doing addressing the church is you need to pray. You need to pray for all people. You need to pray for those in authority. You need to pray for those who don't know Jesus. And so as he's calling the church to pray, and then he, why, why are we praying? Because there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way in which to be saved, and so we're praying that everyone would come to the knowledge of him. And if we're praying for people, hopefully we're also being encouraged that we need to be sharing that one gospel with people. But this word where Paul says, I desire, is actually, it's a command. It's, a, it's an indicative. Paul's not like, hey, maybe you guys should pray. It's actually a command. As he is an apostle, he wrote an inspired word of God. He's like, you must pray. Because of what I've just talked about, now I'm calling you to pray. And again, if you're the sarcastic person, like, well, what is prayer? Like, really? What, like, what is prayer? Well, prayer is simply just talking to God, communing with God. Most of the time we do it with words, or many t- sometimes too, just us and the Lord. Kind of we're not actually verbally saying anything, but we're talking to him in our, in our mind, in our heart. And prayer is, is, is how we communicate with the Lord. We are all made to be in relationship with God. This is how we communicate with him. By prayer. And you think as we pray, we're not going to talk so much about what we're saying to him, but like as we're praying, we're, we're worshiping in him. Right? We're giving thanks to him. We're praying for different things in our lives and other people's lives, and we're praying especially for people who do not know him, want to make his name known. Think about the importance of prayer. I just read this uh, just a few days ago. An old saint, J.C. Ryle, said this, Prayer is the life breath of a man's soul. Without it, we may have a name to live and be counted Christians, but we are dead in the sight of God. The feeling that we must cry to God for mercy and peace is a mark of grace. And the habit of spreading before him our soul's wants is an evidence that we have the spirit of adoption. Christians pray. This is what we do in response. If you're like, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've been born again. I have the spirit of God living within me. You will pray. You will talk and commune with God. And again, if there's there's that sarcastic person like, yeah, like it's just, is it really that big, big of a deal? Like it's just like one verse. Who cares? Like, well, no, actually it's all throughout the Bible, right? God made us for himself, made us to commune with him. And we'd see all throughout the Old Testament, we'd see God's people communing with him in prayer. Abraham, descendants from him, David in the Psalms, all these different kings, all the, the prophets of old. And, and more, Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah spoke of the Lord in building his temple that would be a house of prayer. 
That's what he'd want us to be about as we look to the, the New Testament, many places. I just want to bring your attention. First Thessalonians 5.17, it says, pray continually. Like pray all the time. I'm just going to turn there. Also in, in Ephesians 5.18, we looked a little bit in the past few weeks, this famous passage about spiritual warfare. And after talking about the spiritual battle that we're fighting and all the things we need to put on, and talking about the sword of the spirit, our one weapon, what does Paul finish with? Ephesians uh, 6, 18, he says, and praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And Paul's saying like prayer. Prayer is the one thing we're continually pressed for. We have the word of God and we have prayer. How important is it? And, and then in a, few moments, and then we're going to look at the example of Jesus. Look at his prayer life. So, of course, like, prayer is a, is a big deal. And, of course, so that's the first thing Paul addresses with the church, the call to prayer, and now singles out a group of people to pray. So I hope you can see what Paul is desiring is in line with God's heart, that his people would be a praying people and that we would often be in prayer to him. Again, so that sarcastic person could be like, yeah, so, like, just the pastor, Right? Like just the pastor is supposed to pray, supposed to pray lots. You know, so answer the question, well, who should pray? Who should pray? Well, this text that we have here this morning, I desire that in every place the men should pray. So the men should pray, and of course, women should pray too. Men and women should pray. But uh, I want to bring this to your attention. Robert Yarborough makes this note. This is a gender-specific directive. It does not mean that women should not pray and worship. He knows they will, should, and do. He rather identifies a point of weakness or need affecting men's prayer, anger. At this point, in, in verse 8, Paul is bringing a correction to what was happening within the church concerning men and their prayers. This is a call out to men that we should pray. And also a warning what either keeps us from praying or hinders our prayers. And of course, in terms of this message and talking about prayer and where we should pray and, and kind of our prayer life, of course, everyone, I hope, our ladies are encouraged, are exhorted to pray and seek the Lord in that. But just this passage itself is specifically calling men out to pray. And I hope that we can hear that as men this morning. The heart of this verse is focused on men. The title of my message is Men Called to Play. It's, no, it's crossed out. Men Called to Pray. The re and the reason I put that, because our culture, our society calls men to play. To focus on ourselves, to be more concerned about sports teams or money or the list goes on and on. I want us to see clearly God's intention, which was Paul's, is for men to pray. Men for us individually to seek the Lord in prayer at home. If you, if you have a wife, if you have kids, to take the lead spiritually at home in prayer. We, we can say from Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the man's job to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, we will pray. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, hey, follow my example as I follow Christ. In the home is the man should say, hey, follow my example in prayer. 
as I pray. So in this passage specifically, the men are being called out to pray. And of course, some are like, okay, yeah, we're to pray, and men are to pray. So like, get in your church and pray. You have your space on a Sunday morning. Just pray there. That's it, right? Where, where should we pray? Where should we pray? I love this passage. I desire then that in every place, in every place, the men should pray. In every place, and I'll, I would add to that, and at every time or in every season, we should pray. Many people believe um, Paul has in mind of this verse from Malachi. I'll just read it to you. Malachi 1.11, it says this, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So they would offer incense before the Lord in the temple. In the New Testament, when we're talking about prayers, it's often seen as our incense, our, our words rising up before the Lord. In every place that there would be prayer. For sure, in the context that we're reading in, in every place, it would be in every church. In every church that there would be prayer offered. Acts 2.42, the beginning of the church at Pentecost. What should we be about? It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, of course, as a church, in the church, we want to be about praying. One of our things we want to hold to is fervent prayer. We want to be expectant before the, for the Lord, that he'll answer our prayers, but dependent upon him, that we need to keep seeking him in prayer, that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. We want to see the Lord do great things spiritually, change and transform each one of us, draw more people to himself. We need to seek him in prayer. We need to be dependent upon him. So, of course, in the church, as we start, as we get going, times of prayer, praying at a, with our kids' ministry, in the context, think we just with other believers gathered together in our small groups. We want to gather and pray. We're even, you know, God willing, once a month, this Tuesday again, we're going to gather together and pray as a church, 7.30. I know there's a, there's a group of, of young mothers that meet on Tuesday mornings, and they get together and they pray for their kids in school. I know of, of someone else who's getting together with fathers on another evening and praying. We want to be about prayer. And so prayer within the church, prayer as Christians gathered. And I want to kind of make it even a little bit broader. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes this. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And it's saying, so believers have the fragrance of Christ wherever they go. I don't know if you've ever been in a home where either a, a, a lady had maybe used too much perfume or a man too much cologne. 
and it's like strong, it's overpowering, and then you get into a vehicle to go to drive, and you're like, you still, you can smell it. <laughs> you get home, you still smell it. What I have this picture in my mind, we're to have the fragrance of Christ. It's not a bad smell, it's a wonderful smell, but we need to be often with Christ in order to have that fragrance upon us. And we get that as we pray. As we pray with him, we're going to look at where do you pray here in a moment, but as we're often praying. Because we are to pray everywhere, but everywhere we're to also have the fragrance of Christ. So just thinking about the place, the place is everywhere. I'd say the time is always and in every season. Now I just want to take a, a little time and look at Jesus as our example. If you want to just turn with me to the, the Gospel of Luke, I'm just going to read through a number of passages, look at Jesus' prayer, prayer life, and kind of noting when did he pray, where did he pray. Luke 5:16 will be the first. Again, just thinking where and when. Luke 5.16, Luke wrote this. He, Jesus, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We need times of removing ourselves for prayer. Right? The, the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, Jesus says, hey, when you pray, you go into the room and you close the door and you pray to your father who sees what's being done in secret. That we need times where we remove ourselves from other people and pray and seek the Lord. Get away, get quiet. Whether that's getting up early or staying up late, where is that time, that space that you can get alone? It says Jesus went to a desolate place. So you don't always have to go to a desolate place, but it was a quiet place. It was a place away from other people where no one is around. That's what we, we need if we want to grow in prayer. We need to, at times, remove ourselves from other people. Look at Luke 6, 12 to 13. Another example of Jesus praying. In these, he, Jesus, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So for those of us who love the mountains, you can pray on a mountain. You can pray in a valley. You could pray wherever you are outside. And what was Jesus doing? He stayed up all night and he prayed. And the reason why he prayed, he had a, these big decisions in front of us, the calling of the disciples. And he sought the Lord. And we don't have decisions like that, but just think any big decision you have in your life that's upcoming, you're like, I'm not sure what to do, I'm not sure where to go, you have longer seasons of prayer. And you seek the Lord in prayer, and you, we pray for God's wisdom, for his will, for his leading, and for his guidance. And we trust that as we're like seeking him in prayer and getting other people together and praying about some big decisions, maybe some heavy things, we trust God's going to give us guidance. He's going to give us wisdom. He will answer those prayers. So we pray in big decisions. You can pray on a mountain. Look, just Luke 11, verse 1. Now, 
Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, doesn't say, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I just want you to see this. Jesus' prayer life was such that the disciples said, teach us to pray. They didn't say, hey, teach us to do miracles. They didn't say, hey, teach us to preach. They didn't say, hey, teach us to evangelize. Watching Jesus pray, they're like, teach us to pray. That's, I think that's an amazing thing about the life of Jesus. The second member of the Trinity. 100% God, 100% man, but yet in his humanity, he was totally dependent upon the Father in prayer. I love that. He was praying in a certain place. So that's like, I don't know, what is that certain place for you where we can go and seek the Lord in prayer? Just a few more examples. Look at Luke 18, verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. I'm not even going to read the parable, but it says, Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And if you look at 1711, it says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. They're moving towards Jerusalem. He was teaching on the way. He stopped and he taught them. So on the way from one place to another, Jesus was praying and he was teaching about prayer. But I love what he says here, that we should always pray and not lose heart or not give up. But we can pray when you're on the way somewhere. In Luke 22, 39 to 41, not to take away from the situation we're reading about is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, 39 to 41, he knew the cross was coming. He knew what lay in front of him. And he went to the Lord in prayer and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a storm's stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed. And so Jesus, like the, the, the greatest burden facing him, something we could never imagine in, in, in a few moments, he would be on the cross taking our sin and our suffering, the punishment we deserved upon himself on the cross. What does he do? He, he stops and he prays and he calls his disciples to pray. Of course, we're not facing that situation. Jesus did that for us. But I want us to see in like the worst trials of life and the hardest things that we face, we can follow Jesus' example. And we should go to God in prayer. We should take it before him. Not trying to carry it ourselves. Me call other people. Hey, will you pray with me? I have this thing in my life. I'm facing this thing. I'm going through this trial. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. We have this example for us. So I hope you can see, when, like, where should we pray? When Paul says in every place, he means in every place, and I would say in every season. And just to, just to think through, maybe for your own uh, life and context, what does it look like? Where is every place? And I'm not going to name them all, but you think at the dinner table, bef before a meal, that's, a, that's an easy place to stop and pray. Before you go on a trip, after you come back, you can seek the Lord in prayer at the start of a week, at the end of a week to give thanks. You, you got through it. It was God's good grace. In times of joy, we want to just like lift up these prayers of thanksgiving to God in times of suffering. Again, we go to him and ask for strength to be able to get through it. 
at church in small groups and meeting with people on a walk. When you wake up, you can pray. When you go to bed, right? There's, there are all these places when you're at work, when you're going to work, and the list could go on and on. I just want you to just think through there's so many places where we can pray and seek the Lord in prayer. And so every place means every place. Just think about this. If our phones were our prayers, we take our phones everywhere with us. We go, I don't know, you sit at a restaurant and maybe it sits on the table with you. You're standing in line at the grocery store. You pull it out. What if those were our prayers and every place that we went to we prayed instead of touching these things. Do you know statistically, I, I looked this up, I'm like, I don't believe it. How often people touch their phones on average? 2,600 times a day. 2,600 times a day. Imagine if we prayed half that. Imagine if you prayed 1,000 prayers to the Lord. And I'm speaking to myself. I probably raised the average. <laughs> In order to pray in every place, I just want you to hear this, though. We need to start praying in some places. In order to pray in every place, friends, we just need to start praying in some places. So even that list, if there's another place, you're like, I should start praying there. I start praying at that time. Just take a few. It's not like I expect you to leave. And when we're visiting with people after, it's like, no, no, no one talk, only pray. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we want to grow in our prayers to the Lord. So let's start doing it in some places. Okay, so this sarcastic person who's listening again, they're like, okay, we're to pray in every place. And oh, so you're just supposed to always have your hands up high, right? When you pray, it says to lift up your hands to the Lord. That men should pray lifting holy hands. You're like, well, no, the reason it says lifting holy hands is actually because all throughout the Old Testament, there's this picture of people praying, doing that. I just want to bring a few examples to you. In Leviticus 9.22, it says this about Aaron, the high priest. This is just as they, they started the sacrificial system. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. So you see this example in, in Nehemiah 8 verse 6. We see again, just as the people were returned from exile, and they're reading the law. And it says this, Nehemiah 8, verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So in worship, in praise, they were lifting up their hands. Just another example, uh, Psalm 28, verse 2, though there's, there are so many. Psalm 28, verse 2, it just says this, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy, when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So all throughout the Old Testament, there's this picture of people praying, hands lifted up to the Lord. Even Jesus, actually, before he ascended into heaven, in Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 50, it says this, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So there is actually this kind of physical aspect we see happening one commentator notes this, though, uplifted hands signal appeal to God for his favor and readiness to regard others favorably. 
So you think the standard form we see in the Bible is hands lifted up, often standing, but we also we read people kneeling, people laying before the Lord, people walking. Uh, people, you know, there's, there's all types of forms in which we pray. So again, this person's like, does it really matter how you stand, how your body position is when you pray? Like, lift holy hands, sit down, whatever. No and yes is the heart, the heart attitude. That's what matters in prayer, is our heart attitude. And friends, often our body position can help show where our heart attitude is. Just, just saying the difference, if we're going to pray before you go to bed and you're like half asleep, you're just falling asleep and, you're, and then you say a prayer, you mumble a prayer, as opposed to maybe you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on my knees, I'm going to thank God for the mercies of the day. There can be a body position can matter. Or I don't know, I try to teach my kids like fold your hands, close your eyes because they're so distracted with everything in life. <laughs> But like, so folding your hands, okay, I don't know, does that help you? Does it help your heart? I think it's different if I have this in my hand and I'm praying. That's not going to help my heart attitude to pray to the Lord. So just think body position. We can pray in all types of ways, but just think for yourself, what helps you get your kind of heart attitude right before the Lord when you pray? John Stott says this, though, speaking of holy hands, the emphasis here is not on the posture of prayer, but on the hands being holy, meaning that the conduct of the person praying should be acceptable and appropriate before God. Thinking of holy hands, Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may dwell in his holy temple, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. You just think, are our hands clean? Are our hands Holy. I just want to bring you guys to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, thinking through this. I love what he has to say here. Isaiah chapter 1. And here in Isaiah, he's speaking to the country of Judah, but just thinking about our hands before the Lord, and it speaks to us. Isaiah 1, looking at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Psalm 66, 18, David says, if I cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If we have sin in our lives, it's like we have bloody hands before the Lord. Isaiah continues to go on. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What is this a picture of? We come with unclean hands, sin-stained hands. We need Jesus Christ. We need his work on the cross. In the passage in uh, 1 Timothy, just before last week, we looked at how Jesus paid his life as a ransom for us. He purchased us from God. And as we look to Jesus, what he did on the cross, dying for our sins and our wrongdoing, 
and was buried and rose again, and we confess, yes, I'm believing in Jesus Christ, putting my faith in him, asking God to forgive me. We are cleansed. We are made new. And so every person needs to take that step. It's not hearing, yeah, okay, that's really good. I'm believing. I'm trusting in him. I'm saying, yes, I am dirty. My hands are dirty, and I need Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in which to cleanse me. That old hymn, what can wash away my, my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But friends, just, just think, we, just as we need to continually wash our hands, you know, like our, our boys, they go to play, and they're I don't know, in all types of stuff, playing basketball and whatever else, and they come inside, or like, we're going to eat. Go wash your hands. Like, I already washed my hands. Like, yeah, hours ago. <laughs> You, you need to clean them again. And so you just think, when spiritually we're talking about having unclean hands, we need continual repentance. We need continual cleansing from the Lord. It's not, not, it's not for salvation. Like if you believed in Jesus, you, you guess I'm a follower of him, but we live in the world and we're broken and we're still sinful and we still get into all types of trouble. And so then we need to confess our sins again before the Lord. Whatever he brings to mind. Lord, cleanse me again. Need to be washed again as we go before God in prayer. And so we, so we can ask, like, what do we need to be washed clean of in this passage? Back to 1 Timothy. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Without anger or quarreling. He's saying this needs to be, we need to be washed clean of these things. There are, other, there are many other things, right, that could hinder a person's prayer or prayer life, but these are highlighted. So you have someone be like, yeah, what does that matter? Anger, court, like people fight, we all get angry, that's not going to stop someone's prayer. Why is anger such a big deal? I just want to bring you through a few passages as I sat in this, as I thought about it. Just turn with me to Ephesians, just to the left of Timothy there. Ephesians 4. And there are so many other places we can look at. Why is anger such a big deal in Scripture? Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Because the thing is, if you get angry and you sit in your anger, it gives the, the devil an opportunity. Because anger can turn to bitterness real fast. Because look at this in, in, in Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Do you see this with me? Like what anger can turn into is bitterness. And it does give the devil a foothold in our life and it does affect our prayers. I just want to bring your, think about this too. James 1, 19 to 20. I can just read it for you here quickly. James wrote this. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But I know, and I'll say, and maybe you'll say, but there's righteous anger. And we can have things that are wrong that happen in the on this earth and to us, and we can have righteous anger towards it. 
But here's something, as I'm thinking about it, righteous anger is like a heavy weight that you can carry for a moment, but you can't continue to carry it. It's not for us to hold righteous anger. And what becomes something that's okay, it's an okay reaction, and it's, and it's right because wrongs are happening and justices are happening, but if you keep carrying that, it's too heavy for us to hold. And righteous anger can quickly turn into just man's anger, and man's anger turns into bitterness. And bitterness corrupts. And so what do we need to be about? Just looking there in Matthew, Matthew, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, I know I'm taking this all over the place here, but I want you to show you this with anger. I think it's such a big deal. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Matthew 5, 21. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We're all like, yes, murder is bad. We shouldn't murder. And 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What are you to do with anger? So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You're going, you're like, I'm going to praise God, I'm going to worship. They went to the altar. You're like, you're going to church. So we even say before communion, do you have anything against someone else? They'd be like anger, like, you know, just bitterness in your heart. Like we need to confess that. We need to live for the Lord. And Jesus, thinking his teaching on prayer, in Matthew 6, 12, in the midst of teaching on prayer, right? We want to forgive those, forgive as Jesus has forgiven us our debts, we also want to forgive our debtors. Or if we're like, man, what, is, what does that mean? After that, Matthew 6, 14, it says this, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, your sin. If we're holding things against someone else, I'm angry, I'm so mad, and I'm mad at this person, I'm not going to forgive them. That's going to affect my prayers to the Lord. Just here's a question. Have you ever met a bitter, angry, godly person? Have you ever met a bitter, angry, godly person? Is anyone here dealing with anger and bitterness? After the past number of years, I definitely am. What I realize is not helping my prayer life. What I realize is not helping me become more like Jesus. So as I'm going through this passage, while I'm, I'm very convicted, I understand how anger is going to stop my prayers. I need to get rid of anger and bitterness before my life. I've been crying out as I've been reading this, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to be able to forgive others. Lord, I, I want to lay down that anger at your feet. So I, I, would, I would call out to you, will you join with me in surrendering our anger and bitterness at the foot of the cross? God, heal us. Heal our hearts. And not even saying that there's right things happening. There's still injustices happening. But friends, as Christ's followers, we cannot keep holding that anger and bitterness in our hearts. The Lord has stuff for us to do. He has work for us to do in Red Deer, in Central Alberta.
It, it stops our prayers. Not only anger, but also quarreling. Quarreling, disputing, d- dissensions, arguments. Romans 14.1 just says this, talking about more mature believers. Romans 14.1 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's interesting. Like the, the weaker brother maybe doesn't know as much, maybe isn't as clear, but we're not to argue over opinions. There's a number of other places I can take you. I just want to take you to 2 Timothy and show this to you, 2 Timothy 2.14. Talking about arguing, talking about quarreling in the pastoral epistles, there's lots about it in Titus. There's lots about it in 1 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, it says this, 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. 2 Timothy 2, 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And we're going to have disagreements, and we need to be able to talk about things that we disagree about, but just having foolish arguments that are going nowhere, we need to guard ourselves against that. But look, like, what do you do? Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's the call. The call is not to talk louder. The call is not to talk with harshness. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind, correcting, seeking to correct. Look at continuing on. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Again, these aren't just talking about just disagreements. This is talking about like some false teaching, some false doctrine. But you don't just sit there and argue with someone over and over again. You don't just get louder and I'm stronger and I'm, you know, I'm taller. I can win that sometimes. But what you do is like gently and kindly, you don't take them to the word. But quarreling. It's highlighted so much. And even you just think for the call to be an elder, we're going to look at it here in a number of weeks, they have to not be quarrelsome. Do you think it's an important issue? Do you get how always being quick to argue or quarrel in the church will keep us from praying? When commentator says this, angry men passionate about being right are a primary threat to acceptable worship. Like, so what? Why, why, why does this matter? I, I love one. I was like, oh, I don't know, one verse? I, it's so simple. God help us to, to walk in it. An old saint, John Owen, said this, prayer will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from prayer. I don't know about you. I struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. On my own, in my own strength. I got to keep crying out, God, help me. God, give me grace. God, give me strength. God, help me to love those I do not love in my own own strength. We need to just keep praying just to walk as a Christian. Prayer changes us. We need that transformation. We need the spirit of God at work within us, forming Christ in us. Again, we're called to pray in every place at every time. So let's start to pray in some places. Of course, this is for all, but even in this passage, as men, we need to repent of our anger and our quarreling. 
and lay it before the Lord and ask him to change us. Because he's called us to pray. He's called us to lead the church in prayer. So, man, I hope you can see the calling on your life to take the lead in this. May we walk by God's spirit and obedience to it. Again, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. May God do that in us. May you bow with me as I close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord, I see so clearly why it's here in Scripture. I pray in your kindness, in your mercy, Lord, work in all of our hearts. I know many of us are dealing with anger and bitterness. I, I know I am. I pray, oh Lord, forgive us. Lord, we want to lay it down at your feet. I pray you would change us. You would cleanse us by the blood of Christ, Lord. We bring unclean hands. We're asking you would cleanse them so we can seek you in prayer in greater ways. Oh God, I pray you would seal this word in our hearts, in our minds. I pray you would help us to be individually and as a church of people who would often call upon your name. Oh Lord, we need you. We thank you that we can come before you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can stand uh, to be ready to sing a song in response and, and a prayer as well.